If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, uh, turn them to Romans chapter 9. Uh, we're going to be back in Romans 9 this morning. It's good to be back with you after being out for a couple of weeks. I know I preached a couple of weeks ago, but uh, last week I didn't, and we had the privilege of being with the students for Creed Camp. You're going to hear more about that a little bit later, as well as uh, Susan and I getting away for a couple of, couple of days at the beach. As you can tell, she's tan, I'm not. I sit under the umbrella and enjoy the breeze at the ocean. So that's why I have no tan this morning. But um, we're glad that you're back with us this morning. We're going to continue our study of Romans. Now, since it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in this book, we need a bit of a refresher on where we are in this chapter. And in order for us to understand where we are in chapter 9, I want to turn back for a few minutes to chapter 8. Uh, in chapter 8, we found some of the most encouraging promises in all of Scripture that are given to those who come to faith in Jesus Christ. Chapter 8 begins with verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for those who come to faith in Jesus Christ. That encouragement continues in verse 18 where he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time... He doesn't gloss over the fact that there are sufferings as a part of living in a fallen world. But he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. To whom? To those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.28 was the climax of chapter 8 where he says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And who are those who love God and are called according to purpose? He told us in the next couple of verses, verses 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, and we, we said when we went over that, that foreknew means foreloved. Those whom he foreloved, he also predestined, which means to choose beforehand. And so those who were chosen beforehand to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers... Verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So it was great news in chapter 8. And then Paul closed out chapter 8 with a series of rhetorical questions that were aimed at eliciting in us who are in Christ Jesus, by grace through faith, a confidence in the assurance that is ours through this great salvation that God has purchased for us in Christ. Those rhetorical questions began in verse 31, where he says, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Then in verse 33, he asked, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? And then in the verse 35, he says, What shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then Paul answers that question by concluding the chapter in verses 38 and 39. When he says, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so chapter 8 ended on a very high note that we are, that God has predestined us and called us and justified us and glorified us. So then we, we can know that there's nothing that's going to change that. That's a sure thing. We can bank on this. But then he goes into chapter 9. He begins to deal 
with a problem in chapter 9. And that problem that he begins to deal with in chapter 9 is the problem of Israel. Because everyone at this point to whom Paul is writing, everyone considered Israel to be God's chosen nation, his elect people. But for the most part, in Paul's day and also in ours today, for the most part, the Israelites, the Jews, had rejected Jesus as God's Messiah. They had rejected, therefore, the gospel. And as a result of that, they were no longer part of God's chosen people. Now, the reason why Paul brings this up in chapter 9 is because he's anticipating this to be an objection to his teaching. And the objection would go like this. If the Jews were God's chosen people and now they're not, then how can we find any confidence whatsoever in the promises that God makes to us, all that good stuff in chapter 8, How can we find any confidence in God predestining and effectually calling us to be a part of his chosen people if now Israel is no longer? And so he infers the million-dollar question in verse 6. Has the word of God failed? Has God broken his promises? Has his promises to Israel been negated because now they're no longer his children? To which Paul says, no, absolutely not. It's not as though the word of God has failed. He hasn't broken his promises. And the fundamental reason that he gave in verses 6 through 13 of why the word of God has not failed, why the promises to Israel are still intact is because not all Israel is Israel. And you recall when we went over that, that Paul gave a couple of Old Testament examples of how not all Israel is true Israel. The first example was the children of Abraham, Isaac and Ishmael. He talked about how God chose Isaac to be the child of promise over Ishmael, teaching to us that being a child of God doesn't come from just being a physical descendant of Abraham, but being a child of God's promise. Then he gave the Old Testament example of the children then of Isaac, Esau and Jacob, and how God sovereignly chose Jacob, the second twin, over the first twin, Esau. And Paul says that God made that choice of of who would be a part of God's covenant people. He made that choice before they were born and before they had done anything right or wrong, he said. And that, that Isaac was chosen, Paul says, because of verse 11, in order that God's purpose and election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So we learn from that that the elect are elect not because of works, not because of any, anything about them or who they are or what they do or what they will do, but simply because of God's sovereign call. And then what we saw in the next couple of sections of chapter 9 is Paul providing a defense of God in God's sovereign election. In verses 14 through 18, Paul talked about how God was not unjust in doing this. He's not unjust in doing this because he's God, and he will have mercy on whomever he wills, and he will harden whomever he wills. And then in the section that we covered last time, verses 19 through 23, Paul defended how God can still find fault with the non-elect, even though it is he who hardens them to stay that way. He says, we are the clay, and God is the potter. 
And who are we to question the right of God to make out of the same lump of clay one vessel for honorable use and one vessel for dishonorable use? And in defending God in both of those sections, in defending God in his sovereign election, Paul talked a lot about how God was all about the display of his divine nature. Both his, the, the part of his divine nature that shows power and, and wrath, but also the part of his nature that shows patience and mercy. And the, the, the display of his glory in that sense is evident in both his sovereign and unconditional election of some and his sovereign non-election and hardening of others. So that's where we left off our study last time. And I would encourage you, if that makes no sense, please go back and listen to those because what we're going to cover in the rest of chapter 9 and on into chapter 10 really builds on that foundation. But God there was displaying his glory in both saving the elect and in hardening the non-elect. And since both of these displayed different aspects of God's nature, they're both sovereignly displaying God's glory. Now, as we continue our study this morning, beginning in verse 24 of chapter 9, Paul is returning to that main idea that we began to unpack in verses 6 through 13. Having handled and discussed the defense of God with respect to unconditional election, then now God, Paul now is, is getting back to the main thrust of his argument that not all Israel is Israel, and therefore the word of God has not failed. So let's pick up the story, beginning at verse 24. Actually, by way of context, I want to start reading this morning from verse 22, but the bulk of our text is going to be from verse 24 to 29. Paul says, beginning in verse 22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Verse 24, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So from the very end of verse 23 that we see there, Paul says that God is making known the riches of his glory. To whom? to vessels of mercy, which he says were prepared beforehand for glory. And then Paul goes straight into verse 24 there, and he says, even us. Now, who is the us to whom he is referring there? Well, presumably it includes himself, but it also includes most of, if not all of, his readers. The, the church of Jesus Christ in Rome 
to whom he was writing this letter. But Paul goes on in verse 24 to clarify who he means by us. He says, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So the us there are the called. So what does it mean to be called? We've seen that word a number of times already in chapters 8 and chapter 9. Some of those verses we've already looked at. Romans 8, 28 said it explicitly. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And how are they called according to his purpose? The next couple of verses. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified and glorified. And so to be called by God in this sense, to be called according to his purpose, is to be chosen by God. To be elected by him to be a recipient of his sovereign and saving grace. So now in chapter 9, verse 24, now Paul is talking about who the called are. So the second half of chapter 9 that we've covered up to this point, Paul dealt with the very hard truth of how God is fair in calling some and not others. But now at the end of chapter 9, he's dealing with who the called are. And they are, as he says, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And that is really the solitary, the primary truth that we need to unpack from this passage that we're looking at this morning. That the called that we've been talking about, not just in chapter 9, but also back in chapter 8, the called are the elect from both among the Jews and from among the Gentiles. That's the primary truth that is in this passage. The remainder of this passage that we're looking at this morning, Paul is going to set forth some Old Testament proofs of this. And so I want us to spend some time looking at those proofs, unpacking those Old Testament quotations, but then spend some time talking about the very important implications of this truth. That the called that he's been talking about in chapter 8 and chapter 9 are the elect from both the Jews and the Gentiles. And what are the implications of that? So the first Old Testament truth, or the Old Testament proof that he sets forth is from the prophet Hosea. And Paul explicitly cites Hosea as the one that he's quoting from in verses 25 and 26. Look at those verses. As indeed he says in Hosea, quote, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of of the living God. Now, when you just read that, without going back to Hosea yet, we'll do that, but before we go there, just reading that as Paul cites from Hosea, and he refers to those who are not my people, who do we think of? We think of the Gentiles, right? So also, when he refers to those who are not beloved, we're thinking Gentiles, Especially since, in verse 24, he tells us that the called are the elect from both the Jews and the Gentiles. And in verse 27 and following, he's clearly and explicitly talking about the example of the Israelites. So here, he's talking to us about Gentiles. Those who are not my people, those who are not beloved, who are now called my people, and are now called beloved of God because of God's sovereign election of them. So this gives an Old Testament proof 
of Paul's statement in, in, in verse 24 of even us who are called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Now, these quotes come from the first couple of chapters of Hosea. So in order for us to really wrap our mind around Paul's use of those, those prophets' words, we need to go back to that. So I invite you to turn back to Hosea. Keep your finger here at Romans 9. Turn back to Hosea. It's the first of the minor prophets, the major prophets, which comes after Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. The major prophets are Isaiah and Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. After that, the first of the minor prophets is Hosea. Now, Hosea was a prophet of God who was called by God to be a living example, not just through his words, but through his very life, he was called by God to be a living example of redeeming grace. How did God do that? Well, he told Hosea to marry a girl named Gomer. Now, the first strike against Gomer is her name. I mean, that's just, I mean, I just think of Gomer Pyle, and that's just wrong for a girl. But the main reason why that was a strike against Gomer is Gomer was a prostitute. Why would God tell Hosea to go and marry a prostitute? Here's the reason. God wanted Hosea to do this because Israel was prostituting herself to the gods of Canaan. Israel was prostituting herself to their idols, their gods of, of that land. And so Israel had become unfaithful to God just as Gomer was unfaithful to her husband, Hosea. But God, through Hosea's life, was making a promise, a promise that he would bring unfaithful Israel back to himself in spite of her unfaithfulness. And God was going to communicate this to the Israelites, not only through Hosea's marriage to unfaithful Gomer, but also through the very names of their children. Hosea and Gomer had three kids. The first was a son. And God, God was the one who came up with these names because I don't think they could have or would have. But the name of their first child, their first son, was Jezreel. And Jezreel means God sows or God scatters. And it was a name of cursing because it had to do with God's judgment of Israel, that God would scatter them. The second child that they had was a girl, a daughter, and they named her Loruhama. And Loruhama in Hebrew meant uh, not loved or no mercy. And it was also a curse because it symbolized that God would no longer have any mercy on Israel because of their unfaithfulness and breaking of the covenant that he had with them. Then they had a third child, another son, and they named him, because God told him, his name was Lo-Ami, and Lo-Ami in Hebrew means not my people, which was also a curse because it symbolized that because of Israel's unfaithfulness and breaking covenant with their God, that the Israelites were now considered to no longer be God's people. That was the curse on them that they that they saw, not only through his marriage to Gomer, but also through the very names of his kids. So look, look with me at Hosea chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. Right after the kids were born and get their names, right after that, 
God says this to Hosea, beginning in verse 10. Yet, here's the voice of hope, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. Verse 11, and the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Israel, uh, Jezreel. And then continuing into chapter 2, verse 1, God tells Hosea, say to your brothers, you are my people, and say to your sisters, you have received mercy. Now fast forward to verse 23 of, or verse 21 of chapter 2. Now, at this point, God is prophesying to the nation of Israel through Hosea about a future time when God will bring Israel, unfaithful Israel, back to himself. And he says, beginning in verse 21, and in that day, I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth and the earth shall answer the grain and the wine and the oil and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. And so God scatters, becomes God plants. I will sow her in the land. I will plant her in the promised land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And so the name of no mercy becomes mercy or beloved by God. And then he says, and I will say to not my people, you are my people. And so that third child, that, third, that, that second son, not my people, becomes my people. And he shall say, you are my God. And so Hosea as a book, that's a synopsis of it, but it's a beautiful story of God's redeeming grace and how he will bring unfaithful Israel back to himself. But what's interesting about this, as we go back to Romans 9 now, what's interesting about this, and perhaps more than just a bit confusing, is that when Paul quotes from Hosea in chapter 9, he's not talking about God's redeeming grace to Israel, but using those quotes from Hosea to show God's sovereign election of Gentiles into God's chosen people. But I can assure you that none of the Israelites who were hearing Hosea's prophecy in the 8th century B.C., that none of them thought that those prophecies were intended to include the Gentiles. How then does Paul do it? On the surface, it seems like Paul is committing a cardinal error of, of hermeneutics, which is the study of how we interpret the meaning of a text. And one of the rules of hermeneutics is that you can't bring meaning to a text and have it say something that the original audience would not have understood from that. An example of this would be the first couple of chapters of Genesis, the six days of creation. The original audience of Genesis chapters 1 and 2 would have understood Genesis 1 and 2 only one way, that God created everything in six 24-hour days. They would not have understood a day to mean an age. They would not have understood a day to mean an, eight, an eon. They would have understood a day to be a day. 
And so we can't take today's scientific theories about the presumed age of the universe and read back into Genesis 1 and 2 something that the original audience would have had no concept of. We have to read that meaning back into it in order for it to say that. This is just a fundamental rule of hermeneutics. You can't introduce something into the text that the original audience would not have understood from that text. The only exception to that rule is when Scripture does it to itself. And that's exactly what we have here. That's what Paul is doing. This passage from Romans 9 is just as divinely inspired as the prophecy from Hosea. And since Paul is using Hosea here to refer to Gentiles who are, cra- who are grafted into the family of God, then what we have here in Romans 9.24 and the quotations from Hosea, what we have here is an important hermeneutical tool for us when interpreting Old Testament prophecies about Israel. In his commentary on this passage, Douglas Moo puts this hermeneutical tool, this hermeneutical key this way. He says, Old Testament predictions about a renewed Israel find their fulfillment in the church. And who's the church? Those whom Paul said are called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. So with this important hermeneutical tool in hand, we go back now and we, and we seek to read Hosea. And, and with that tool in hand, we see the finality of that designation by God to Israel that they are not my people and that they are not loved. Israel, because of their unfaithfulness to God, because of their covenant breaking, they have truly become not my people which Paul then tells us is also a designation for the Gentiles. So the covenant-breaking Israelites, get this, the covenant-breaking Israelites have become as if they are Gentiles. They truly have become not my people as a nation. So now when God prophesies about the, the renewal of Israel, the restoration of Israel to be my people again and to be loved by God again. He's referring not to the restoration of Israel as a nation, but he's referring to the church, those called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And so the church today, from Jew and Gentile, is the people of God. The elect nation of God, called from among the Gentiles, those who are not my people, those who are not loved, but now are my people, God says, and are loved by me, are my children. But also called from among the Jews, called out from among national, political, natural Israel. And that's where Paul now gives the second Old Testament proof in this passage. This time, quoting from Isaiah, beginning in verse 27. Look at verses 27 through 29. He says, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, 
if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So in verses 25 and 26, Paul is quoting from the prophet Hosea as an Old Testament proof that God is calling some Gentiles to be a part of the church. Now in verses 27 through 29, he's quoting from the prophet Isaiah as an Old Testament proof that God is calling some out from, the, from among the natural political descendants of Abraham to be a part of the church today as well. Now these quotes are from uh, chapters 10 and 1 of the book of Isaiah respectively. And they both demonstrate the idea that, that a remnant of Israel is going to be saved, a remnant out of the larger national political Israel, that a remnant of them, of them are saved. These quotations from Isaiah are showing us that that concept of a remnant being saved of Israel is not a New Testament construct, but is consistent with the Old Testament as well. So that first quote in verses 27 and 28 comes from Isaiah chapter 10. And it says that though the nation of Israel will be as the sand of the sea, which, by the way, is the fulfillment of prophecy to Abraham, right? That I will make you into a great nation, and your sons will be as the sands of the sea, too numerous to count. But, he says, in spite of that, only a remnant will be saved. This is from the Old Testament, not just the New. Only a remnant will be saved. So also the second quote in verse 29 comes from Isaiah chapter 1, verse 9, where Isaiah says, If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, or as the ESV quotes Isaiah 1, 9, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, so the offspring or the few survivors are whom? They're the remnant. So if the Lord of hosts had not left us a remnant, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah, of course, being synonymous with wickedness and rebellion against God and deserving of judgment. And Paul quotes from the Old Testament. It says, if, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a remnant of his, then we would have been completely deserving of judgment and been like Sodom and Gomorrah. So the remnant were the remnant, not because of anything deserving in them to be the remnant, but simply because of God. He says the Lord of hosts left a remnant. And how do they become the remnant? We'll, we'll, we'll see when we get to Romans 11 how they become the remnant. In Romans 11, verse 5, Paul says, So too at the present time there is a remnant saved by, or excuse me, chosen by grace. So the remnant are the remnant not because they deserve to be the remnant, not because there's any, anything in them deserving of that. They are the remnant because they are chosen by grace. Out from among national Israel, out from among the natural descendants of Abraham, chosen by grace to be a remnant of true spiritual Israel. So Paul says all this as a, as a means of picking up where he left off in verses 6 to 13. 14 through 23 was, was kind of a, a parenthetical defense of God in sovereign election. Now he goes back to that thought. He says, not all Israel is Israel, but those for whom the promises of God are still intact, all that good stuff from chapter 8 that we mentioned earlier, all of those 
who can still claim those as promises are those whom God has chosen by grace out from among the national spiritual national Israel descendants of Abraham as well as out from among the Gentiles as he says in verse 24 even us whom he has called not from from the Jews only but also from among the Gentiles so that's the truth it's given old testament proof from Hosea and the prophet Isaiah but now I want to spend just a few minutes as we, as we wrap up, I want to spend a few minutes talking about the implications of this truth. That the called that he deals with in chapter 8 and chapter 9 are the elect from among the Jews and the Gentiles. What are the implications of that? There are lots. Let me just give you five. First of all, this truth further reinforces that God is completely sovereign in salvation. We've been talking about this from the second half of chapter 8 all the way through chapter 9 in particular. But these verses hit it again, regardless of where we come from, whether it's from among the Jews or whether it's from among the Gentiles. It is God who saves. It is God who calls. The nexus of our salvation is the calling of God to salvation. And God's calling of us to salvation is rooted in, in that doctrine from chapter 8, predestination. Recall chapter 8, verse 30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified, declared righteous because of the righteousness of Jesus. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. He speaks of our glorification being made perfect, something that will happen when we come into eternity. He speaks of it in the past tense as if it has already happened because it is such a sure thing. And so our calling is rooted in our predestination, our being chosen by God rather than our choosing him. Jew and Gentile alike are designated by God the same as Hosea and Gomer's third child. We are not his people. As a result of that, we are spiritually dead. And it is only by his effectual call from the word of God communicated to us, communicated to us and to our soul by the spirit of God that gives new spiritual life to us in Christ. So God is completely sovereign in salvation, which should elicit from us a spirit of humility as well as a sincerity of worship and praise to God. So that's the first implication. The second is that this truth helps us to understand the nature of true spiritual Israel. Earlier in chapter 9, we saw Paul say that the promises to God are still intact. The word of God has not failed because not all Israel is true spiritual Israel. The covenants made to Israel, the promises made to Israel are still valid. They're still intact because they were made to true spiritual Israel. But now with these verses verses in hand in chapter 9, we understand that being a physical descendant of Abraham, not only is is that not a, a guarantee to be in the family of God, but it's also now not even a prerequisite for being in the family of God. Why? Because now Gentiles are included Gentile meaning basically non-Jew, 
Non-Jews are now included in the family of God. This is part of what Jesus himself said. In Matthew chapter 8, right after the story of the centurion, the Gentile centurion, whom Jesus commended for his faith. He said, I can't find any faith like this in all of Israel. Because he believed that Jesus had the power and authority over sickness to, to heal his servant from being paralyzed. And after commending him for his faith, Jesus said this in Matthew 8, verses 11 and 12. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God. Who are those who come from the east and west to recline at table with the patriarchs? Well, they are the Gentiles. He's talking about Gentiles there. And then verse 12, while the sons of of the kingdom, these are the unbelieving Jews, they will be thrown into the outer darkness And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So true spiritual Israel includes both elect Gentiles as well as elect Jews who come to faith in Jesus Christ as Messiah. Now, this is huge for a number of reasons, but one of them is because this means that all of the promises for and about the future restoration of Israel as the people of God are promises and covenants that are for us, the church of Jesus Christ. Consider Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10. He says, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right Hand. This is a promise to Israel, to restored, renewed Israel. But it's a promise that we can claim as well as the church because we, the church, are the true spiritual Israel. Consider also Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 33. He says through Jeremiah, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Then verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. A promise that there is coming a day when Israel, when, when, when there will be a, uh, the, the law will be placed into their hearts and written on their hearts and they will be his people and he will be their God. He's speaking to us, not just about a restored Israel, but about the church of Jesus Christ. This is a promise, not just to the restored Israel, but to the church today. It speaks about the new birth and how God will be our God as well. So this news that the church is the true spiritual Israel, comprised of those whom God has called, not just from among the Jews, but also from among the Gentiles, means that all of those Old Testament promises for a restored and renewed Israel are promises that we can claim today. As you go back to the Old Testament, as you read Psalms and Proverbs and the prophets, and you read about the prophecy of God restoring Israel, those are promises, church, that we can claim as the people of God. A third implication follows from that, 
And that is because we have a better understanding now of true, true spiritual Israel. And hear me on this. Set aside your politics for just a moment. Because we understand the true nature of true spiritual Israel, then we need to be careful about unquestioningly defending national Israel, particularly out of some biblical rationale that they are the chosen people of God. As we read Paul and the other New Testament writers, we see that it is we, the church, who is the chosen people of God. Jews and Gentiles called into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, his son. National political Israel is not. National political Israel itself today is like Homer, or Hosea and Gomer's third child. They're not my people. Now, we haven't gotten to chapter 11 yet, and when we get to chapter 11, we're going to find a verse that I believe, in my opinion, tells about a day that's coming in the future where we will see a massive revival of Jews coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And that's coming in the future. But that's not here right now. And until that happens, Israel, speaking of national political Israel, physical descendants of Abraham, national political Israel is not God's chosen nation. Now for this reason, we should guard ourselves against unquestioningly or uncritically backing Israel always and always being against Palestine in some kind of general posture. We can be pro-Israel, we can be pro-Palestine on certain issues, certain specific issues, whatever they are, but we need to be careful as believers in Christ about mindlessly approving of of a pro-Israel posture regardless of the circumstances politically in the Middle East. Instead, the standard for what is right and what is wrong with respect to Israel and Palestine should be applied equally. And as Christians, we should look look at both of them as not my people, as peoples who fundamentally need the gospel, as people who fundamentally need both our display of gospel love as well as our declaration of gospel truth. The fourth implication of this truth applies to our understanding of racial equality and racial reconciliation. Because true spiritual Israel includes both Jew and Gentile alike, Paul then can say things like Galatians 3 verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek Slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The gospel tears down those things that divide us. It can further lead him to say things like Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 16, where Paul says this, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, which was a bad word, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in flesh by hands. So the Israelites are calling you this bad name. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. In other words, in a very general way, you were experiencing racial inequality and racial injustice. But, verse 13, 
But now in Christ Jesus, see what difference the gospel makes. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man out of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The gospel has broken down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. There is not now no more Jew or Gentile in Christ. We are all one in Christ. But it wasn't just the racial inequality between Jew and Gentile that the gospel dismantled at Calvary, but racial inequality between all races and all nationalities and all cultures. Let us be unequivocal about this. Racial injustice and racial inequality of any kind is categorically antithetical to the gospel. And when we display that in any way, we are lying about the gospel and we're lying about what Christ accomplished at the cross. Therefore, as a result of that, we must take a stand against it in our cultures, in our churches, and even in our very own hearts and minds has big implications to racial reconciliation. Finally, the fifth implication here is the truth that spiritual Israel, true spiritual Israel, includes both Jew and Gentile, should remind us, church, of the multi-ethnic and the multicultural nature of God's future kingdom. In the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus said that we are to make disciples of all nations. Matheteo pantata ethne. That word nations is the Greek word ethnos, from which we get our English word ethnic or ethnicity. But oddly enough, that very same word ethnos is used in Romans 9 verse 24 that we looked at this morning. And in that verse, it is translated as the word Gentile. It's the word ethnos. The word Gentile fundamentally means, it is is simply a, a reference to any ethnicity other than that of Israelite. That's what that word fundamentally means. And so we're reminded here of the multi ethnic, multicultural nature of God's kingdom, both now and most particularly in eternity. In Revelation chapter 7, John is given a vision of the eternal throne room of God. And listen to how he describes it in verses 9 and 10 of that chapter. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, panta ta ethne, from all tribes and all peoples and all languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What an incredible picture of eternity for us, that there will be gathered with us around the throne room of our king, people from every tribe, every nation, every people, every language, every race, 
crying out to God, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We will be crying out in one voice, worshiping God. Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, penta, ta, ethne, and then the end will come. So church, with this fresh reminder of the multi-ethnic, the multicultural nature of God's eternal kingdom, let us labor today as long as God gives us breath to make disciples of all nations, panta, ta, ethne. Would you pray with me?